I invite you now to go to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. These are just a few brief uh, verses. James is this letter that is not very long. You could read through the whole thing this afternoon in probably less than 30 minutes. But we're going through it slowly because uh, each part of it provides so much for us to think about and to dwell on and to consider. Um, he pulls no punches, and this is another example of it. This is basically uh, Jonah in Nineveh. You'll see what I mean. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And that'll conclude our reading. Not a positive and encouraging message. I will try to get us to then the flip side of this that I do believe is positive and encouraging. Uh, but last week, James had said to what would be, in ancient times, most likely the middle class or the business class, you merchants who think about, you know, next year we're going to go to a town and we're going to set up shop for a year and we're going to sell and trade... And he said to them, as you think about those future plans, realize even your good plans are all dependent on the Lord. It's only if the Lord wills would you be able to go to another town and set up shop for a year and, and do the business that you want to do. And so even though they had good plans, he still gave them a word of caution, a word of warning, to just not presume even on our good plans. And here we can sense the tone totally shifts. I mean, this is a strong passage. This is, he's announcing judgment. Uh, and in this announcement, doesn't then say, here's the five things to do to get out of it, which is why I said this is like Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah just showed up in Nineveh and said, judgment's coming. And he, Jonah might have has said more. We just, in the Old Testament, we don't, we don't hear the rest of the message. We just hear the judgment and one of the points I wrote, uh, Brad and Cindy and I are actually, I've asked them to both prepare what they would put as an outline uh, every week for these passages as I put it together. And I never see theirs before I put mine together, but then we get together and we share them and we make notes for each other uh, from a worksheet that I found helpful. And so we're all using it together. And the note I made in that worksheet was James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 is not a violation of James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. So, just so that you remember what James 1, 19 through 20 is. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
if I were to like handed you a postcard and put James 1, 19 to 20 and James 5, you might not think the same person wrote them. <laughs> because James 5 sounds like that is, you're just announcing judgment. If I'm reading it, it might even sound like you're angry in how you're announcing the judgment. So would you also be the person who would write, guys, everyone, like just slow down a little bit, you know, listen more, don't just come to quick judgments. Anger usually doesn't send us in the best direction. And so if you were to do that as an experiment, you might say, these are probably from two different letters, right? Written by two different people. This guy was having a good day. He was pretty chill. This guy was mad. He just lost his job. And yep, two totally different times. But we read it in one letter. It is from James. And he is saying both of those things. And so James chapter 1, in telling us to be slow to come to judgment, is not telling us we can't ever come to judgment. And James' warning to be careful what anger could do to us is still not saying anger is always a wrong thing. When we've taken the time to think and to listen, we're going to come to judgment. We're going to say, this is the right thing to do or this is the wrong thing to do. And when we come to a conviction that there's a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do, all of us should have a sense of frustration or dissatisfaction or even anger when the wrong thing is happening. So in parenting, uh, so yesterday, yesterday wasn't Joshua's birthday, it was on Friday, but you kind of get a pass from most disciplinary things uh, on your birthday in our house. Like I try just so hard to, it is your birthday, and so you're gonna get away with more than usual, but there's a limitation to that. And at one point, both on Friday and Saturday, uh, the birthday boy was like, I'm just having fun. But sometimes fun is making his younger brother really angry. And so it's like, listen, I want you to do every fun thing you want to do, but you're not allowed to have fun making anyone else angry. That is, I want to take that off. And even though it's your birthday, that's, we're going to deal with that. You're not allowed to have fun picking on your younger brother. And if that continues to happen, then there's a, right, I have a responsibility as a parent to say, I thought we had this conversation. I'm giving you tons of flexibility today. There's only a few things I'm telling you not to do. And it's not being a godly parent to then say, I refuse to discipline, or I refuse to have the conversation. Like James chapter 1 is not saying, turn your brain off. You know, don't think, don't, don't come to some sort of conviction. It's well, make sure you just don't come to the quickest one. You know, like you hear a loud bang in another room, and when I didn't see it, and I might think, oh, I know who did it. Like, no, enter the room and say, maybe I don't know who did it. Like, let them tell me what happened. So be slow in just jumping to conclusions, but don't turn your brain off. God's given it to you. He's given you a mind, and he's asked you to love him. He's given you a heart, and he's asked you to express it. And sometimes the way we express our mind and our heart is getting passionate about things. And so what James is saying in chapter 5 is not, well, he read a news article, and before he read the whole thing, now he's just going to say something. Like, he's thought about this for a long time. He has witnessed things. But in all of that, he's come to a strong conviction 
that he has to warn his listeners just like his elder brother Jesus warned those in Jerusalem that judgment was coming and that it was in fact the loving thing to do. So where it feels like almost like nails on a chalkboard, it is actually a grace. And so we see in James 5 the grace of announcing judgment. They didn't listen to Jesus. The time window is shrinking and he's resounding the alarm. And it doesn't sound nice, but alarms aren't supposed to sound nice, right? When I don't know what you set as your alarm for first thing in the morning when you need to go, but if a song comes on that's quiet and you like to listen to, you might just stay asleep. <laughs> like, you have to find the noise that wakes you up on purpose to get you going. And we have systems in place. I always have to remember, oh, Fairlawn does their tornado siren at noon on Wednesday. I've lived here my whole life. You know how many times I forget that? And like, the worst time to call someone is at like noon on Wednesday because then there's just going to be this like blaring noise or to do a Zoom call. And oh, but I know why it's that annoying. I know why it's that loud. Like it's, if danger comes, how do we warn the most amount of people? And so James makes this announcement. Uh, in a time when the majority of people did not uh, own their own land and a few people owned a lot of things and then were dependent on a lot of labor to come and the opportunity as a worker to go to court and say hey I think I haven't been paid the right amount of wages or this incredibly limited and so the opportunity for a landowner to just say, are you complaining? Okay, you're out of a job. I'm going to get this guy to get a job. And are you complaining? I got these slaves over here that I can make do the job. And most of the legal uh, cards were stacked in the deck of the landowner. And there were plenty of opportunities for an abuse in that system. And so James has seen that abuse over a long period of time. And so he's announcing judgment. It's loud. It's, it's clear. But he wants people to know that it's coming. Now, if any of the listeners do what the people of Nineveh did and they repent, we have every reason to believe, just like in Nineveh, there is an opportunity to repent. But if people don't take the coming judgment seriously, then they're not as likely to repent. And so if we stand up and say, I don't actually know if there's going to be a judgment day or not. Maybe there will, maybe there won't. That's not a gracious thing to say. It's saying, no, we absolutely believe there is a judgment day coming. And so it's for you and me to take it as seriously as we can. Because whatever we don't know about what tomorrow might bring or next week might bring, every one of us has been told by the maker of the universe that there is a judgment day coming. And it is a loving and gracious thing to tell people that, to tell them the truth. From that, he goes on to clarify that this coming judgment, though, is going to happen, in fact, from within. So he talks about then the contradiction and self-destruction of sin and evil. So he says judgment is coming. But from then on, what he's not trying to have us imagine is that sort of God is so mad, he's now going to do a bunch of things. But that sin and evil has this way of judging itself. 
So the very things you bought that you worked so hard to rip off all these people and to now enjoy yourself, they're deteriorating on you. You are becoming increasingly isolated because you're not treating people in a way that build relationships with people. You're, you're treating them in a way that they want nothing to do with you. And so over time, it's your own garments are rotting. Um, this corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your own flesh like fire. And so he's warning everyone that this evil that's happening that God is allowing will itself be the end of the very people he's communicating to. And that is a consistent theme throughout scripture. We, might ask, we often ask, why does God let this happen? Why did this evil happen? Why did this evil happen? And the Bible doesn't give us a hundred reasons why. But it does show us time and again that eventually those who refuse to repent and just stay committed to evil eventually go down a road where by their own wickedness they get punished. So think of Pharaoh chasing after the people of Egypt. Like he was so wicked he refused to let them go but then even when they went he changed his mind and he said that's it I'm going after them. And he led his own people into the Red Sea because he couldn't stop. He just wouldn't repent. He wouldn't honor God's desire to let them go. The people didn't destroy him. Israel did not win a battle to become free. But they became free when God allowed Pharaoh, who refused to repent, to go the way of his heart and to be destroyed. Happened to Haman in the book of Esther. And it happened at the time of Jesus when they put him on the cross, right? They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted no one to follow after him. And then they did the very thing that caused him to prove then and forever that he's the Lord of the universe. That more people started following him. That people from every tribe and tongue and nation started following him. Jesus didn't fight back and destroy them. He allowed their wicked hearts to play out long enough that they tripped themselves up. And that is the reality of Judgment Day for all of us. So one of the ways that C.S. Lewis put it that I found helpful is that you know, if in our minds we imagine that there are people who want to be with God and he's just saying, no, I don't want you. I'm going to send you to punishment. He said, no, no, no. It is people who consistently their whole lives have said, God, I don't want you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be with your people. I don't want to be with Jesus. And he says to them, okay, well, then I'll let you have what you want. I will let you go the way you are choosing to go. But for no one is this image of, no, 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 they really want to worship the Lord. They really want to sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And he's just then somehow saying, well, no, but you're, I just don't like you. No, no, no. His grace is expansive. The promise for all of us, if we repent, is that we'll receive open arms to come after him. But if we do not embrace that posture, if all we do is resist him, then it is our own resistance that will carry us into judgment. Does that make sense? 
It's happened throughout history. It's true today. So even now, if you're someone who thinks in our moment, you're just sensing, it feels like there's wickedness around us, there's evil. James would not tell you, don't be concerned. You should be concerned. James 1 saying, you know, don't be quick to speak, be slow to speak, uh, listen, doesn't mean you can't research and study over time and come to convictions and get passionate about things. But there is a caution to say, but don't become so afraid of it that you begin to think that evil is just as powerful as good. It's not. Don't begin to think that the devil is as powerful as God. He's not. And Jesus did enough of that to show there are demons. There is a dark side. Nothing in the Gospels undermines that. And Jesus can demonstrate, in a moment, I can cast them all out and bury them in the sea. He can be riding on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are like, we're about to die. And he can speak. And the storm is stilled. And they say, who is he that the winds and the sea obey him? And so we should believe there is evil in the world. We should be righteously angry and opposed to it. But we should never become so afraid of it that then we think it's more powerful than the God that we serve. He'll always be the most powerful. He has no rival. He has no equal. But then when we pause at the end of that, and that, that's basically where verses one through six end, but I'm adding this last point of then think about the healing power of justice and generosity. If James is announcing this judgment because these people have taken advantage of a situation, manipulating the poorest of the poor for their own self-indulgence, and we hear that judgment, well, what's one of the ways if we would feel even a little convicted to say, what if I'm like that? Am I guilty of that? What, how, how would I not contribute to this? Well, do we advocate for justice? And are we people of generosity? Those are the two things that help us over the long haul not become the people that James is announcing judgment on. And so if you, and most of us get this window through our lines of work, but in what you give the majority of your thoughts and time to, you know things and you see things that other people don't have a window in. When you see that, now how are you working to help other people that are struggling with that? Fighting for justice, saying, if we keep treating people this way, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> this is going to get harder for all of us. This, this isn't okay. We can't lie in our year-end reporting on the finances. Like, eventually someone's going to find out. We can't just treat people this way or steal this from them. Advocating for justice, which is the right doing of things, the appropriate uh, action that's supposed to take place over the long haul will help other people look at us and say, okay, I see what you're doing. I see that you care enough to advocate to defend. You're not just sitting around and saying, hey, I'm sorry it's real hard for you and I'm glad I'm not in your shoes. But working to advocate towards justice and not only justice, but ultimately generosity. 
right? I just look at my own life and say, do I have any gold or silver or clothing or anything that is actually rotting? Like it's, it's affecting me in such a way that I didn't realize it, but I think I care more about it than I do what I should care about. And if I do, one of the fastest ways to deal with that is to give it away. Uh, very early on, I think it was April or May, uh, when, you, when you think in terms of sacrificial generosity and giving of relationally for other people, Amy came up to me and she had read this story and she's like, oh my goodness, with all the bad news, listen to this story. Here's a wife whose husband went into a nursing home and because of all the restrictions, like she wasn't allowed to go and visit him. But the nursing home needed part-time kitchen help. So she applied and got a job at the nursing home so that she could see her husband. And I was like, oh my goodness, would you do that for me? And she was like, I hope so. <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, this is like really compelling. This is an amazing kind of generosity. Like this is a story you want to go tell people. And since then, it's inspired other people. It was a daughter with a mom who couldn't see her mom and so said, well, let me, give me a job to do so I can see my mom. Like what are the ways in this moment when so many people are crying out, wondering if anyone cares that they're being denied their wages, their opportunity to flourish, that we can come alongside and say we can advocate for you in whatever ways we can sacrificially serve you and be generous, we would love to do. And we have a, a moment to do that. We have daily opportunities to show that kind of love and care for people, that we're willing to do it. In fact, there's ways in which our own uh, government early on tried to make this possible for all of us. So. In the very beginning of the CARES Act, you can, you can kind of see what some of the earliest leaders were thinking about how long the pandemic would be in that the CARES Act provided for employers who were going to then now envision letting go of people eight weeks of wages. And so any business, any small business could apply for eight weeks of employee costs to try to keep people uh, employed and not have to lay them off because they already knew how many other people would have to be laid off. But that window gives you a sense of what everyone was thinking at the time. Like, by eight weeks, hopefully we're done. And hopefully this isn't needed anymore. At the same time, in a surprising way, both parties agreed to send stimulus money to all Americans, whether they were laid off or not. It is really, really hard, traditionally, to get conservatives to think that it's a good idea to send direct money to American homes. That's usually something conservatives say that we're not for that. At the same time, all of that money was just as available to churches and nonprofits, which is really hard to get traditionally liberals and progressives to do. Like churches were able to apply for PPP money as much as any other business, and many of them got it. And now, at, from now till the end of the year, uh, this doesn't apply to most of us, but for people who are able, you're limited in how much you can give up to 60% of your income and write it off as a tax deduction. For 2020 alone, it increases to 100%. Because the government said, we don't know who and how, but we believe 
that so many nonprofits are going to be hurting right now that we want to increase the amount. We don't want to penalize people who want to be generous and can be generous in this moment. And so we will let them be as generous more than they can. And it has to be given to something that is within this year because there's some ways of giving. They're called donors advised funds where you can give now but then disperse it over a long period of time. And the specific provision in the act is that, no, 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 you need to give it, and it has to be given now because people are hurting right now. And if someone is, says, I want to give it to this Christian nonprofit or I want to give it to this church, they're allowed to do that, and no one will restrict them in doing that. Now, what the next stimulus will look like and how things will get argued uh, is to be determined for all of us. But both of those were early on recognitions that we have an obligation in both directions. If we're going to tell people they have to go home and they're not allowed to work, but work is how you provide for your family, what are we going to offer them? And if our actions are going to affect so many organizations throughout, how do we incentivize and encourage generosity in this moment? So that's at a big picture level. For you and me, we have the chance to do that every day. And how, how will we do that? Who in your life feels like they're not being listened to? And they're crying out the cries of the harvesters. James is saying those cries are reaching the throne room of heaven. Revelation talks about the cries of the martyrs reaching heaven, and those do too. But James is saying, so does the cry of the harvesters who aren't able to provide when they want to for their families. And then what is anything that we might have but not need and therefore have the opportunity to extend or share to bless other people? If you do that for just one person, It'll be so healing to them to say, wow, you really care. Like, you love me. I, I, can, I, I can feel it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the strength of it, that in your love for us, you are clear about sin and wickedness, that you are a God who judges, not, not quickly, uh, not out of a temper, but because you know what is right and wrong, you know what is light and what is darkness. You care about the creation that you've made. And so you care when any part of your creation is taken advantage of or abused or ignored. And so we, we thank you for our opportunity to listen in to what James said to his audience and to think through how we could apply that in our own day. Uh, in, in our desire to, to be slow to speak and quick to listen, help us to then develop mature thoughts and mature passions that overflow in sustained action to care for and to advocate for and to be generous in whatever ways we can to love other people.
Father, help us to be salt and light, agents of healing and mending in a world that is fragmented and broken. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.